Hi, welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Today, we get to talk to Dr. Monique Rainford, who gave an incredible TEDx talk about Black maternal health in this country. Boom. We are recording. We are online. I am very excited to be here with you, Dr. Monique Rainford, especially because you're calling in from Jamaica. I'm so (laughs) grateful you made the time to connect with us. Quick background. You are a... OBGYN, who I got to meet during our TEDx talks when you gave a phenomenal talk about Black maternal health, which is the subject of today's conversation. You're also an author of a book available on Amazon called Please God Send Me a Husband. And (laughs) having grown up in Jamaica, though, you graduated from American medical schools. You went to University of Pennsylvania. You went to Harvard Medical School. You did your residency in OBGYN at Georgetown. And also with training in psychology, you also promote lifestyle medicine and counsel people on how to improve your health, right? Yes, well, I do that on the side, so to speak, <laughs> like encouraging you know, friends and other people or talks, encourage people on healthy lifestyle, because I'm really a big advocate on what we can do to improve how we live, our health, and our well-being. I'm, and that is a big part of my message. Yeah, I'm 100% behind you on that. I mean, I don't have all of the doctorate degrees behind my name at all like you do, but I love that, you know, I think all of our alignment in terms of, of hoping to give people the tools and guidance to help them live a better life. Yes. So can you tell me what motivated you to come to the United States from Jamaica, where you had an established practice also in familiarity, because you grew up there, went to schooling in the U.S. My understanding was, did you move back to Jamaica? So two things happened. First of all, I was born in the U.S. My parents were originally immigrants who decided to return to Jamaica after I was born. So I always had this dual identity, dual Mm -hmm. citizenship, dual, Mm -hmm. in some cases, dual allegiances, because, of course, you're born one place, you do have allegiance to the place you were born, and you have allegiance to the place where you grew up. So I knew pretty early, I grew up in Jamaica, and I knew pretty early in my, probably even before my high school career, that I decided I wanted to return to U.S. for university and doing all that. So that happened. And I did that when, you know, I finished high school, returned to the U.S. to the undergraduate, as you mentioned, medical school residency. And so at that point, the question to me was, all right, do I stay in the U.S. or do I go to Jamaica? My parents live in Jamaica. So I had that family pull to want to be in Jamaica with my parents and so I made that choice to go back to be with my parents. In the time there, I actually got married, had children. And then later on, my husband and I decided that for our children, we decided for me to re- return to the U.S. My husband had studied in the U.S. as well, but to return to the U.S. for opportunities for our children. So that's basically why I made the decision to be go back and why my family made the decision to return to the U.S., and at what point, because now you're thinking about raising children in the United States and, yes. you know, part of the my awe of you was this, you know, peeling back the layers and really revealing loud and clear that there are disparities in the healthcare system when it comes to Black maternal health in particular. Can you talk to us a little bit about the statistics? I mean, did you ever look at the statistics for maternal health in Jamaica? And are there even comparable statistics to things in the United States? And then I know you talked a lot in your TEDx talk, but maybe you could share with us some of these stats that are really shocking that maybe the average American does not know. So there are multiple questions in that. And I'll yes, sorry answer about that. 
<laughs> no, no, no problem. I'll try to um, address each one. So you talk about black maternal health in general. So as an OB, an OBGYN, I'm, I've been always involved with women's health for my career. So the reality is it's not just black maternal health. The health of African-American women are worse than white American women on many metrics. <laughs> the list goes on and on. Cervical cancer, mortality rates, breast cancer mortality rates, even though the incidence is the same, hypertension, obesity, the list goes on and on. Multiple factors is a disparity. And so in terms of maternal health in Jamaica, now right now, overall, maternal health in the U.S. is better than maternal health in Jamaica. That being said, because of the disparity, the gap and that's not really surprising. Jamaica is a developing country, mm -hmm. but we do have more poverty in Jamaica than we have in the U.S. So those things, you know, are different. So what happens is how it struck me. I can tell you going back, the disparity struck me when I was sitting in the auditorium of Harvard Medical School. And that was OK. I won't tell you when that was, but that was way back. <laughs> <laughs> so and I'm sitting there. I see some slides. And one of the slides I saw was roughly the infant mortality rate for an African-American baby. And I can't remember if it said African-American or black, but it was clear black person in America was, I'm remembering roughly about 11 per thousand. Now, what was interesting about that statistic for a white or Caucasian American baby, that was five. Wow. And the other part, and I think it was 13, because I might forget the exact numbers, because that was a little while ago, let's put it that way. But the other part that struck me why it was so interesting because the rate that was quoted for an African-American baby was worse than the rate for a Jamaican baby. That's what blew my mind. I'm like, what is this? Wow. So first world it, country it, versus developing country and the statistics for black babies in America were worse than babies in Jamaica. Exactly. That blew my mind. And I really didn't think I thought of it. And every time I heard the disparities, you know, it came back to your mind, but I didn't dwell on it. I did other things. I just, let's put it this way, a seed was planted. And then when I decided to return to the U.S., more seeds were planted. Another seed was planted a few years ago when I listened to another TED Talk and the presenter talked about the causes of some of the disparities. And she, that presenter, identified race and racism as causes for some of the disparities. And then I heard yet another presenter who presented another TED-style TEDx talk who presented talking about how African-American men's health were affected by race and racism. And then when I started doing more research on the maternal mortality issue, then those issues were more and more exposed. And I came across it all the time because as a, an OBGYN, I subscribe to the daily newsletters, the daily information from American College of OBGYN. And more and more of that data was coming out in big New York Times, NPR, ProPublica. More and more of that information was being published and I was able to read the information and I was able to read the data behind it. So I got, it allowed me to gain a very good understanding of why the disparities are here in America 
why it exists. And that's part of the reason why I chose that topic for my TEDx talk, because I wanted to continue to shed light on why the disparities exist. Right, because when you were quoting some of the things that are happening in terms of health overall, cancer and all that sort of stuff, I mean, one might be able to initially say, oh, maybe there's something biological or genetic or that sort of stuff. But the reality is, no, it's a lot about racism and discrimination. And in fact, I think there was a TEDx talk that said that chronic stress because of race-based discrimination can add seven and a half years to chronological age. And if you consider the case of Serena Williams, right? Mm -hmm. Totally world famous tennis player and still, I think, had a lot of difficulty when she was having her baby. It seems like wealth and education and familiarity can't protect you from that sort of disparity in treatment. Right. So what happens is people have something called implicit bias or unconscious bias. The tricky thing about that is that Sometimes we're aware of a bias or biases in different ways. However, when something is implicit or unconscious, those are biases that we're not aware of. A well-intentioned doctor or nurse, well-intentioned, may be giving substandard care to somebody because of their race, but they don't realize they're doing it because they don't realize they have the bias. And that is the tricky part. That is a tricky One of my dear friends is an Mm OBGYN, and she's a white female Mm OBGYN. And we have spoken at length about race, and she is incredible, a kind human being, all that sort of stuff. And she mentioned... When I asked her in preparation for our conversation, I said, you know, what kind of training do you receive in medical school? Or as a white woman, how aware are you, as a white dot OBGYN, how aware are you of the disparities? And she said, you know, with continuing education and even within medical school, you are taught about the idea of implicit bias. And for sure, the OBGYNs are aware of the disparities in treatment. But I think the biggest question that she and I grappled with, this idea that As doctors, I think most doctors, they want to do good. You go into that profession to heal people, to help people. And yet when you're faced with implicit bias, even if you know that implicit bias exists, I would assume most people just want to think that they're doing the right thing. What is necessary for offering culturally competent care? You know, how does a doctor who thinks or knows about bias, who thinks they're doing right by their patients of color, how do they do that? They can test themselves. So Harvard has a site that offers and you can look up implicit associations test so that is something that somebody can decide okay i am going to test and see what kind of biases i have and they have it on multiple metrics so first start is they can go on that site and do their test at the very minimum it will raise their awareness of their biases and when you're more aware of your biases you can do more to counteract it programs can be put in place. That is more on a broader level, though, putting in programs for implicit bias to train people. And personally, I didn't hear anything about implicit bias in medical school, but I probably went to medical school well before your friend, but that wasn't discussed. Disparities were discussed, but the only reason they kept telling me and I kept hearing was poverty. It didn't add up. Racism, the effects of racism were never mentioned when I was in medical school and that never came up. And to be honest, as I mentioned, I only started hearing about it about two or three years ago when I started hearing these talks so that I gone to understand impact of race and racism. It's more racism, not race, because it's, as you mentioned, it's not biological. And I'll speak more to that why it's not biological. So, but however, as an individual, 
you can do, anybody can go on to the Google and look up Harvard's implicit association test, IAT, do the test and discover what biases you may have. And we all have biases. It's a matter of which bias we have. We all have biases. Absolutely. Well, that's how we make decisions, right? Based on our past experience and and everything. We have to have biases. I mean, it helps us function. The problem is, is when some of these biases help us function less than in a way that we should not function or in a less helpful or a less effective way. Discovering some of these biases allows us to bring the subconscious, the unconscious into the conscious so that we can be aware that I may be acting with a bias against a certain patient from a certain location, for example, and I can actively try to counteract that bias. This is what I tell my staff. I tell them, when you're taking care of a patient, think of somebody you love. You love, whoever it is you love. I don't even say family member because not everybody gets along (laughs) with everybody in your family. So I deliberately don't use family member. I said, think of somebody you love. Give them the kind of care that you would want someone you love to receive. If you think about that with everybody you take care of, then you will be giving everybody the very best care you can, regardless of their race, because you will be thinking of, okay, somebody I love, what test would they, I want for them? What intervention would I want for them? How would I want to talk to them? And if you really, to me, bring that in your consciousness, that can positively affect, I believe, the way that you treat all your patients. The other thing is that building relationships with anybody, as you know, can enhance the experience for you from the doctor's perspective and from the patient. So this part is actually, there's scientific proof with this part. When you build a good relationship, the relationship that a patient has with their doctor, if it's a good relationship, that can have a positive impact on the patient's health. Building good relationships with your patients, regardless of where they're from, just making sure you take the time to invest in getting to know them and building that relationship can enhance the care you deliver and the care they receive and the way they receive that care, how well they do from that care. And that must be increasingly difficult, at least you know, for me as a patient, I find it difficult nowadays to get access to doctors who will be willing to have anything more than a cursory conversation because of the limits placed, you know, how many patients they need to rush through the system in order for them to get paid because of the insurance system and on and on and on. So that's really interesting that you emphasize the importance of building that relationship with your doctor and patient, you know, just having that tight relationship. So you have mutual respect, you have communication, you have an understanding of how people function. Sarah, but you're absolutely right. The system as it is now makes the visit shorter and shorter, and that does affect it. And perhaps that, and this is hypothetical, that could be one of the factors that plays in because the relationships that were built years ago, even if people had biases, which we always did, when you get to know somebody, that kind of changes how you see them, that individual. But if you don't have time to get to know them, then... There's nothing to change, right? There's no relationship to improve the way you see someone. So you will see them just as a race instead of the person. Mm -hmm. Well, I think then maybe going back to your suggestion of the love, because I think as my friend said, it's not that they got great training in it. They were just made aware of something that is called implicit bias. You know, it wasn't any training that they received per se, you know, going in and being as good of an actor as you can and really channeling that sense of love and compassion for each person even in the short visit, yes, might be the difference maker. Now, 
You said you might talk about what are some of the issues that Black women face while they're pregnant and what are some of the complications. Can you talk a little bit about that? Some of the issues they face, and it's multifactorial. So for example, the stress from pregnancy related to racism and other factors may increase their propensity to develop certain conditions. For example, preterm labor. Preterm birth, if a baby is born low birth weight or early, has an impact on the baby's risk for that child's risk for the whole life. So just being born early can affect that child's risk of getting multiple medical conditions. So it starts from the beginning. So that child will already be potentially behind or risk will be higher. So we'll be behind from the beginning. So that alone there have been risks with racism, et cetera, associated with the risk of developing conditions like preeclampsia, high blood pressure of pregnancy, and different conditions. Mm-hmm. Those conditions are also influenced by lifestyle. So if you go in with high blood pressure, your risks are higher. If you go in with diabetes, your risks are higher. But it's a vicious cycle because, of course, if your biological age is higher than your chronological age, mm-hmm. seven and a half years then you develop some of these health conditions at an earlier age than you would otherwise. So you go in with pregnancy, into pregnancy, for example, with high blood pressure, which already raise your risk of certain complications. So you're starting off from behind on so many levels. And that is part of the vicious cycle. You start out from behind and the circumstances, the implicit bias, the other circumstances that affect the care you receive or the relationship you're able to build with your healthcare provider, it just makes it worse. Or the treatment you receive, if you know you're getting treated in a way that you shouldn't, of course that makes you feel stressed. Of course that makes you feel unhappy, which again contributes to adverse events in the pregnancy, bad things happening in the pregnancy because of the additional stress that you have on top of the fact that you were going in sicker because of adverse events in your life or discrimination in your life or different things that made you more prone to get illnesses earlier than you might have otherwise. And it sounds like, you know, it wouldn't be at all fair to be like, well, they, you know, people, women should communicate that better to the doctor. I mean, the burden should be placed on the doctors to be aware of that, those the, the circumstances and the situations surrounding patients of color who come in then, because I think, you know, going back to the Serena Williams case, I think she, the articles that I read said that she really tried to advocate for herself, but they didn't listen. Yes. Healthcare providers in general. So I hate, generally, I don't like the term providers, but is the term used and why it's used? It's used for a reason. Because in healthcare now, traditionally, there were mainly doctors giving the care. Now they're nurse practitioners. Midwives have been around for a while. They're physician assistants. There are multiple other healthcare people who deliver health care who are not doctors. All of the people who deliver health care need to be trained in implicit bias and need to understand, need to counteract the bias because everybody who's delivering health care should be an advocate and should be aware. And if the person, for example, if the nurse on the floor of the hospital, if that nurse doesn't take the complaint seriously and she does not alert the doctor It almost doesn't matter how compassionate the doctor is if the doctor doesn't know about the problem. Right. On multiple levels, people need to be made more aware of their own biases and also how to contract the biases and how to deliver care, good care, excellent care, in spite of their biases. 
in in terms of the patient, yes, patients do have responsibility for their care and their health. But this is the problem. When you take responsibility for your care and your health, and like you mentioned with Serena, and people ignore you, and you ask again and people ignore you, there's only so much you can do. Mm -hmm. Because you can't treat yourself. If you advocate and you're ignored, and that unfortunately has happened to a number of African-American women, they advocate, but they were ignored. And sometimes it led to death. Way too often it led to death. And that is a really disturbing thing. Not that people didn't advocate, but despite them advocating for themselves, despite them playing, despite them making people aware of the problem, they were ignored and then they end up dying because they couldn't treat themselves. That wasn't possible. They did everything they could do on their part and they were ignored and they died. It really is not just about the patients by any stretch of the imagination. Shalon, who I talked about Mm -hmm. in my TEDx talk, I mean, five times. It, she went to healthcare professionals five times in those three weeks before she died. Five times. I mean, I remember being pregnant. To get yourself to a doctor's office to fight for the care, even once, when you're already uncomfortable, you're already worried, you know, without, and to have to go back five times and know that you're feeling worse and worse and not being listened to, it's heartbreaking and it's broken. Five times. And she wasn't, it wasn't always visits to the doctor. She had a nurse coming in her home. So she had so many encounters, those five encounters, and it couldn't save her. So she couldn't do anything more. She did everything she could do, but it wasn't enough because, well... The healthcare providers didn't provide. They didn't provide. And you may have heard the story of Kara Johnson. They made a TV show, The Resident, recently on the store of Kara Johnson. And what happened to Kara Johnson is she had a cesarean section. She had internal bleeding, which her husband noticed that something was wrong. He alerted the nurses. He alerted anybody who could over and over again. He was ignored until the time they took her back to the OR. She rested on the table and died. After advocacy, alerting, asking for help over and over and over and over again, he did everything he could do, but she died because they didn't listen until it was too late. That's the lot sometimes. And that is why it's so important that healthcare professionals be aware of their biases, do whatever they need to do to counteract it so that they can help women when they need the help, so that women don't die unnecessarily because people are not listening, because people are ignoring them. Because a patient, a woman, her family can do so much and no more. But when they do everything they need to do and the people who are supposed to do their part, healthcare professionals, do not do their part, then we have a problem. And the problem, unfortunately, is more than a problem. It leads to people dying over and over again. And this happens to African-American women in a disproportionate manner. This can happen to anyone. It has happened to Caucasian women. It has happened to women of any races. So it's bad for anybody. And it is particularly bad for African-American women because of the disproportionate rate that it happens. I think one of the stats, it is, and I just sat there listening and feeling what you were saying. And when you mentioned African-American women in particular, I felt like it was really shocking. And is this true that African-American women have a higher mortality rate than African immigrants? Yes, because it's not about genes, right? It's not about genes in the traditional sense. It's not about a racial makeup by genes. It is about the effect of racism on one's health. The longer someone, a black person, stays in America, unfortunately, the more it can adversely affect their health. 
and so the health declined. So an African-American woman who was, for example, born and raised in the U.S. will have these adverse effects her whole life. She gets all these adverse effects of racism that affects her health in multiple ways. And then she has that biological aging that exceeds her chronological age, all those risk factors. A woman, for example, immigrating from Africa, grew up in one of the African countries, came in, often African immigrants are well-educated, but as you know, it doesn't matter if African-American woman is well-educated. However, they're well-educated, they come to the U.S., and not that they don't get biases and racism as a black person. The problem is they didn't have to deal with it as long. And if you don't have to deal with something as long, then the effects on you, the cumulative effects aren't the same. I can tell you another example that has nothing to do with race. For example, people who give are chronic caregivers. They take care of people who are ill over and over again or for an extended period of time. That affects their health. That stress from that affects mm-hmm. their health. And they do it over and over again. And obviously, the longer they do it, the more it can have an adverse effect on health. For African-American women, the racism over and over and again, the more they have to deal with it, has that adverse effect. A woman coming from Africa, yeah, she may need to deal with it. And first, she may not even think it's racism. So it doesn't bother you the same way when, you don't, when you're unaware of something. And when she may realize it, well, she may have learned tools to buffer and tools to cope with it better because she didn't have to deal with it her whole life. Her children, however, having her children in America, that's a different story because her children have to deal with it. They don't have the safety net of coming into it later. They have to deal with it earlier. I read this statistic that the health of the children, Caribbean children born in the U.S., Caribbean ancestry is worse than the health of their parents and worse than African-American. Wow. And as you know, as I'm raising my children in the U.S., I care about those statistics. Yes, of course. I care about them very much. Yes. I mean, so going back to the statistics then, I mean, from your talk, African-American black women are three times more likely to have maternal deaths than a white woman and more than three to four times more likely. Wow. And more than 60% of these deaths are preventable. And so that brings me back to our conversations about doctors and healthcare providers, as you say. And you also mention in your talk about doulas and also some of the other programs that help address these issues. Can you help talk about what might be able to be done about this beyond individual doctors being aware of their biases? I'm glad you asked because I always like the silver lining. I always like to tell women, what can you do rather than just feel despair? And there are absolutely things that can be done. First of all, women can be selective in who they go for care. Find out from your friends who gives you good care in terms of who you think spends the time with you, who cares about you. That's one thing. Doulas are support people. Women with doulas do better. They have less complications, maybe because that they have that one-on-one support and one-on-one advocacy throughout the pregnancy. And nowadays, more and more doulas are not just following women when they come to the hospital in labor. They're following women throughout the pregnancy. That support, that backup, that advocate helps improve outcomes. The same way I talked about the relationship with your healthcare professional can improve outcome and make you do better. And also on individual level, anything that the woman can do to improve her health is helpful. Always talk about exercising, healthy eating, actively engaging 
in stress reduction exercises, as I mentioned in the talk. Those things also matter because that overall improves our health. And again, that gets her into pregnancy safer, gets her through life safer. And there's research that has found that aggressive lifestyle medicine intervention, meaning lifestyle changes. Lifestyle medicine is just a branch of medicine that applies lifestyle to treat health conditions. No, like a doctor saying go for a run, basically, as opposed to taking a pill. Right. Okay. Sometimes you need both. Right. Using lifestyle more. So when you aggressively apply lifestyle medicine interventions in care, you can actually, it has been shown to actually even reverse cancer. The potential of applying lifestyle to improve health, improve health during pregnancy, improve outcome at the end, to improve the health of women, to improve the health of people is amazing. And that's why I'm so excited about healthy lifestyle, because I think that that is the part that individuals can play in taking control of the health. And don't get me wrong, we need all the other things too, because we do need the implicit bias to be addressed. We do need the education of the healthcare professionals. We do need the system set up to provide good health. There are toolkits, for example, in California, meaning the packaging so that when a complication happens, if you don't have the knowledge to know what to do, you won't know what to do. You have to have the knowledge. And so what the toolkits do is neaten up and provide good knowledge, good steps. Because sometimes in the emergency, what you need to do to get through that emergency is step-by-step management. You need to think of the problem and you need to know what to do when you find the problems. And so that education, those toolkits are very helpful in addressing it from a clinician basis, helping the clinician have the tools to know what they need to do that if they see a problem, what to do about it. Multiple levels. You have to recognize your bias. You have to see the problem. You have to recognize the problem and you have to know how to intervene in the problem. So there are multiple different areas that need to be targeted, but it can be targeted one by one or hopefully not one by one. Different branches targeting different areas so that we can overall improve the health of women in general. When you talk about the toolkits in California, is that through healthcare system? Is it the state sponsored? Tell me a little bit more about those toolkits, please. California introduced those toolkits when they realized that the maternal mortality rate was increasing in California. And they also realized that there was a big disparity for African-American women. They got together and they came up with detailed information of what to do in certain scenarios. For example, hemorrhaging. That's a common complication in pregnancy. Education, what to do, what to keep in a set, like you have a little kit, so to speak, that Mm -hmm. has all the things you need in those situations. So they developed this solution and they've implemented it in California. And the implementation, as I mentioned, the talk led to a 55% reduction in the maternal mortality rate in the time period that they studied. Toolkits is really part of the knowledge base, making sure that healthcare professionals have the knowledge base and the tools to give the care that people need in emergencies. Recognizing the problem, listening to women, but also having the tools to give women the care they need. Absolutely. Well, and wasn't there also a program in North Carolina that had success? So the North Carolina program, what they provided women high-risk women were pregnancy care management and also information. So when you have a 
pregnancy care manager, when you have an advocate who will educate you about the conditions and ensure that you get the help you need, that alone, it considerably improved outcomes for the women who got it. Advocacy, the support, the knowledge, the information, the handholding, literally, in some cases, that really does improve outcome. And those measures really need to be implemented to help make a difference. Not just maternal effort, not just addresses implicit bias, but multiple different solutions have to be enacted so that it can really be addressed in a very comprehensive manner. Well, and it sounds like relationships, information, and action are the three sort of pillars to make this change. It sounds like there is hope. It just has to be focused on continuously. Yes, there's definitely hope. And I don't want any woman to listen to this and think, oh, no hope, no hope. There's plenty of hope. The problem is everybody needs to speak out. Everybody needs to participate. Well, if you care about it, the more people know, the more people who will be aware of healthcare professionals will be aware of the biases and the impact the biases can have on care of the women they're taking care of. That's one thing. The education, the more educated women themselves are about their health and the people who take care of them about their health and the partnership to work together. Because, for example, Serena said, I have this problem. They didn't listen at first or at second, but she knew the problem she had. Ultimately, she was able to get care that saved her life. Ultimately, turned out right after much advocacy. If a woman not only also knows the potential conditions, shares it, and she's listened to the whole combination, and if the healthcare professionals are well educated so that they know what the problems are as well, everybody working together, significant improvements can be made. That's fantastic. I feel like there's hope. I would love to learn more about those toolkits. So I'm going to see if I can dig up some information. Maybe you can share that with me and we can share that on our social media channels for anybody who wants to learn more about that. And where can people find you? You said, obviously, we have your book out there and I will post a link to your TEDx talk. I'm so grateful for you making the time to connect all the way from Jamaica and talk to us about black maternal health, because this is there's a lot of information in in this talk. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Sarah. Hope it was helpful. People can easily find me on my website, www.moniquerainford.com. As I mentioned, my book is available on my website and on Amazon. Please, God, send me a husband that is targeted for women who want to find the right partner for life. That's what it talks about, because I also believe that the intimate relationships we have have a very significant impact on our health and well-being. And they can also email me and that you can find that email through my website, but dr.moniquerainford at gmail.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It was great connecting with you again. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me, Sarah. It was a pleasure. If you love what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review while you're at it. Also, if you're looking for some great email, who isn't, sign up on our website, dearwhitewomen.com and get our weekly email every Wednesday that gives you special bonus insider tips. You can also find us on social media. Sarah, can you tell us where to find? Absolutely. On Facebook and Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and on Twitter at DWW Podcast. Find us there. <laughs>